This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A little later in the hour, a look at what data your apps might be sharing without you even knowing about it. But first, at one time, dinosaurs ruled the planet. You know that. They existed on every corner of the world. Fossils of the animals have been found on every continent. And Africa is no exception. But the history of dinosaurs in Africa is a little bit hazy. It's incomplete. And now a new discovery might help clear that up. A a titanosaur, a giant sauropod, has been uncovered in Egypt that dates back to the final dinosaur era about 60 to 100 million years ago. A rare find for that part of the world. The discovery was published this week in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And my next guest is here to tell us what this missing puzzle piece tells us about dinosaurs in Africa. Eric Gorsak is author on that study. He's also a postdoc researcher at the Field Museum, famous Field Museum in Chicago. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. So this dino is from a group called Titanosaur. I heard that he had a sort of a bit of a Jay Leno chin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The new dinosaur Monsaurosaurus belongs to the group Titanosaurs, and they're a very successful clade of dinosaurs during the last act of the Age of Dinosaurs during the Cretaceous period. And one of its defining features is its chin. It's a very well-developed chin compared to other Titanosaurs. So what does this tell us about this dinosaur? What's significant about this finding? Yeah, so the last 20 million years or so of the the Cretaceous, that last act of the Age of Dinosaurs, is pretty well known across the world, like in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Madagascar. But when you look at mainland Africa, it's been this giant question mark. There's only been a handful of fossils found during this time, and they're usually fragmentary and just provide a little bit of information, and we can just have a more general feel of what was there, but nothing more specific, like what kind of species were there, who mm. were they more closely related to. And so this new dinosaur, Monsaurosaurus, uh, has very informative skeleton, and we understand at least partly what was living on Africa during this time and who it was more closely related to. Does it look like the other dinosaurs or the other titanosaurs? The same size, things like that? Yeah, uh, generally, the gestalt is there. Um, mm-hmm. But for in terms of size for the body, it was on the lower end of the titanosaur body range spectrum. Um, it was definitely a small to medium-sized titanosaur, which even to us is still a large yeah. animal. Yeah. Its shoulders probably be about the height to my head, and its neck and head just a couple feet floating above that. Wow. Um, but other titanosaurs include the largest dinosaurs who have ever lived and the largest land animals who have ever lived. Some recent finds like Dreadnoughtus, Nodocolossus, and Pedagotitan are just tens and tens of tons as large, whereas Mountainsaurus is hmm. Do we have any, we have an idea why? Uh, why? The, oh, you're back. We had a little bit of digital hit there. What? No, sorry. Go uh, no, on with your question. That's okay. It's like being on a cell phone and you drop out. That's what we had <laughs> yeah. there for a second. Let me, let me rephrase my question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the, the, this dino lived during the late Cretaceous period, the last right. days of the dinos, uh, before they were wiped mm-hmm. out. But fossils from this era uh, in, in this part of Africa are pretty rare. Why? Why are they so hard to come by? <clears throat> right. That's a great question. Uh, part of it is if you look at Africa, most of it's covered in some sort of vegetation like grasslands, savannas, jungles, rainforests, and all that. So the amount of exposed rock for much of the continent is just obscured from uh, trying to look for them. So that kind of leads to deserts like the Sahara and some of the deserts down south. But when you look at the Sahara and trying to find these late Cretaceous deposits, there's not much there. Or of what we do know about this time period, it hasn't really produced 
those fossils that we need to be that are informative. Mm-hmm. So those fossils that have been collected are few and far between. There are only like a few bones here and there. Um, so yeah, it's just yeah. a matter of just going out there and just finding more um, of those deposits better characterization of them, more science to be done to understand those rocks, as well as finding the fossils in those rocks that can tell us more about what was living there. You know, when I was looking, I was doing some research on this finding. I got I got involved in the whole the continental movements, Pangaea. And, yeah. Uh, isn't that fascinating? <laughs> I mean, is that, oh, how, yeah. is that how they got around, How we why we find fossils of dinosaurs in different parts of the world? Because the continents were still butted together? Correct, yeah. Um, <clears throat> during the Mesozoic, the age of dinosaurs, uh, the Triassic and Jurassic, the first and second acts, if so you will, if you will, uh, for the age of dinosaurs, you had Pangaea this one landmass, um, and dinosaurs were all over. And they all looked similar to one another. But it wasn't until the Cretaceous that the continents really started to take off and break apart from one another. And one of the large questions is how did this large-scale change in Earth's history affect the different biotas on the different continents mm-hmm. as they moved apart? And this has always been kind of a puzzle for paleontologists and especially the Southern Hemisphere. And But with recent decades of finding new fossils in South America, Madagascar, India, and Australia, we still have this question mark of, uh, of Africa, this, the second largest continent, as well as being more or less in the middle of the previous Pangean supercontinent. So it's this giant chunk in the middle that's still a question mark, and how does it connect the dots with the surrounding land masses, with the different animals living on those land masses? Mm-hmm. Our number 844-724-8255. I open the phones with my own peril because we get so many people who want to talk about dinosaurs. You can also tweet <laughs> us uh, at uh, SciFry. How, how did you get involved in it? Were you fascinated by dinosaurs as a kid? Is that why you got involved? <laughs> uh, well, that was also <laughs> 30 years ago when I got really into dinosaurs at a very young age. Um, but uh, I was working at on my uh, doctorate, my PhD at Ohio University, where I started to do research on dinosaurs of the Southern Hemisphere, and it became more focused on Africa and trying to fill in this these gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the dinosaur group that I mainly focused on was titanosaurian dinosaurs. Um, and so working with my advisor, they had several skeletons from Tanzania, and then it just kind of branched from there with different projects, with different colleagues. Yeah. Uh, started working with different titanosaurs from, like I said, Tanzania, Malawi, Kenya, and now Egypt. Um, so I just became this expert on titanosaurs from Africa, and it's just kind of knowing the people and just kind of got yeah. uh, contacted. And the lead author, uh, Hisham, just showed me some pictures, and I was super excited when I saw those to <laughs> but, just jump on board. But but you also were looking <laughs> for fossils in, in Antarctica, right? Now, a lot of True. people say, how does a dinosaur survive in that cold? But that Antarctica was, a, it was on the equator at one point, wasn't it? A long, long time ago. Um, but during the age of dinosaurs, it was slightly further north, but not too far from where it is now. And But it was still connected to South America, Australia, right. and then Indo-Madagascar. Madagascar was tucked in there along with Africa. So it was a completely different time in Earth's history, and it was much warmer. So dinosaurs were already on there. Um, but as time went on, they we we still need to figure out who was living on Antarctica. We still have fragments of bones of dinosaurs there. And Antarctica, um, yeah, and it's a big continent. People, don't, you is. know, they, they they think of it, you know, not as a continent, just but there's are mountains and things, and there's land under there. How, what is mm-hmm. it like to spot? How do you spot a dinosaur <laughs> fossil and under the ice or in the mountain? Well, yeah. <laughs> Does it just bubble up like the meteorites do? They just appear at the surface. You have to dig for them. Uh, not quite. I, we're not going to be frozen in ice, so we have to look for areas that have exposed rock that's underneath that ice or just are not covered in ice. So the project I'm involved in uh, was 
focus on the peninsula of Antarctica, which is the northernmost part of Antarctica and also has you know, more or less less ice and snow, so there's more rock exposed. And so me and several teams from across the uh, United States and internationally uh, go there and look at the rocks and just see what's eroding out. Uh, and just hmm. hopefully with some luck, find some dinosaur bones. That's, that's that part near South America? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, they actually have flowers going there in the summer. Don't oh, they cool. Have plants and stuff. Uh, remember from my trip to Antarctica. Uh, so how does it, how does Antar- the Antarctic species play into this story of dinosaur or mammalian evolution? Yeah, with the dino- <coughs> excuse me, uh, with the dinosaur evolution of the fragments that we have, it's a very it's somewhat of a perplexing problem. We have some dinosaurs that we typically find in the northern hemisphere, like these ankylosaurs, your your armored dinosaurs, a tooth of a hadrosaur, your duck-billed dinosaurs, and those dinosaurs are. You know, they're found somewhat all over the world, but they're mostly known from, like, the northern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as a partial tailbone of a titanosaur was found on the peninsula. So we know we have a somewhat of a standard Gondwanan or southern hemisphere flavor dinosaurs, but we also have a few oddballs making their way down there. Mm-hmm. And they naturally just crossed. There was a land bridge, right? Everything's were connected. Yeah, more or less the southern tip of South America and the peninsula were still more or less connected to each other. Um, and Australia, like I said, was mostly attached to uh, mm-hmm. Antarctica as well. well. Now, you know a lot about dinosaurs. How much would you like to know about dinosaurs? What? How fuzzy <laughs> is our picture? Uh, it's, it's getting better. I can say that. I mean, it's always going to get better. Uh, more expeditions, more science, and more techniques uh, are definitely opening up how we study dinosaurs in the past couple of decades. Computational mm-hmm. methods have improved to do very large-scale questions of, like, how did they evolve, how fast did they evolve, mm. um, as well as just better imaging, uh, CT scanning, making 3D models, really make a... Uh, Really, you can visualize the bones in a different way. You can see inside the bones somewhat, and then kind of yeah. yeah, and then you can share that data yeah. with other people across the world. Um, but there's still a lot more about what yeah. these dinosaurs are doing and how they did it biologically, physiologically. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's have, a fun I, field. <laughs> I have a fun tweet for you coming okay. in. It says, "Can you tell us anything about uh, titanosaur brains? And if you were a dinosaur, which one would you like to be?" Oh boy. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the thing about like titanosaur brains is that they're somewhat rare. Um, skulls are typically a rare thing to find for titanosaurs, and that's mainly because their bones in their skulls are very fragile, so they're not likely to preserve. Um, so knowing much about the brains of titanosaurs is very limited to how many skulls we have of them. There's only like a handful of known titanosaurian skulls. Um, which dinosaur yeah. I would like to be? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I would probably choose some sort of owl. Um, birds are dinosaurs, technically, right. so that would be my que- or my answer to the question. But if it was a non-avian dinosaur, let's go with, I don't know. No, let's go with you. Let me talk okay. about your owl. <laughs> i got about a minute left. Why would you choose an owl? Uh, they're stealth predators. They're nocturnal. Uh, I think barn owls look really cool. Um, they really need things with their ears and sensory information to pick up things in the dark. Um, I think it's a really cool animal. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, that is a great, great, yeah. great choice. I, we have an owl outside my house. I hear it every night. So I'm, I'm oh, going to cool. be thinking about you, Eric. Every oh, time thanks. <laughs> Eric Gorsak, author of, uh, <laughs> of a study in nature, ecology, and evolution. He's a postdoc researcher at the Field Museum in Chicago. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Cool. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. When we come back, how all your social media apps may re- be revealing more than you think. 
how it's keep they may be keeping track of where you're going, what you're doing. Do you let them do that? Do you have any control whether you can let them do that or not? We'll we'll talk about all those issues about privacy and what you give away, what you think you give away, and what you may be giving away. We'll be right back after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Last weekend, an Australian researcher pointed out on Twitter that a heat map of popular running locations released by the fitness app Strava could reveal the locations of military installations in deserted areas, places around the world. And if you looked at the map for runners' activity, where you normally wouldn't expect to find young, fitness-minded Westerners working out, you could uncover a number of likely military sites, including some that had not been previously disclosed. Well, it's not just Strava, though. Even if you think you're being careful about what you reveal online, the apps and the services you use may be exposing bits of data about your habits. A couple of examples. People have been giving away their location by posting a geotagged image on a Craigslist ad. Snapchat's Snap Map feature can reveal the location of your friends. A glance at your Venmo feed can give outsiders information about your personal life. Even the patterns of which posts you like and interact with on Facebook can be used to help draw inferences about your private world. So what's going on here? Is there anything we can do to help keep our lives more private? Joining me now is Zainab Tufekshi. She's an associate professor in the School of Information and Library Sciences at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times who wrote a really interesting piece recently about the Strava case. Uh, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for inviting me. You're, you're welcome. Also, Gavin Sheridan is an open source intelligence specialist and also co-founder of Viz Legal. He joins me via Skype from Dublin, Ireland. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me. Uh, Gavin, just briefly, what happened in this Strava case? So Strava published a, a map uh, showing the activity of its of its of people who contribute data to Strava's platform, um, which allowed you to see all over the world where people were running or cycling and sharing their data with, with Strava. And you could zoom in on any part of the world to see where people are, are running and what kind of routes they take. And it allowed you to get this amazing kind of visualization, I guess, mm -hmm. of, of, of people's activity. So this was really not a hack. This was not someone releasing data everyone thought was private, but we, people using Strava knew they were giving out this information. Precisely, yeah. It actually comes from Strava Labs. So they, they collect all this data from all their users, and they, they, they had this idea to create a map to allow anybody to come in and see how people are, how, where people are running and what kind of routes people take. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's very interesting to, to look at it because you can see, you know, where people are cycling, where people are running, and, and where people are swimming, and you can kind of get an idea of, of the kind of activities people are doing and where they do it. But, of course, when they turned it on, they didn't realize that the rest of the world would be watching them also. Well, to some extent, yeah. I mean, they, they put it out there. Yeah. And I guess the first thing people do in this situation is that they, they zoom in on, you know, places that they're familiar with. So people will usually, you know, whether it's a Google satellite image or a Strava map, they'll zoom in on places that they're familiar with. So they'll, they'll look at where they live and they look at, you know, places that they've run themselves and they'll see what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that essentially is that they've published it for the whole world. So it means that we can see where everybody is running. Uh, Zainab, so who, who's to blame here? Is, is it the user? Is it the company? I mean, is it the military people? The, the officers are not telling their soldiers, turn this stuff off when you're running? I mean, I think this is a really interesting case that shows 
we're all to blame and nobody's to blame because it's very hard to predict what any piece of data will reveal, mm. not on its own, but when it's joined with all sorts of other data. So it might make perfect sense for somebody, say, who's running in Seattle to let this be public and they look at the heat map and they discover new routes. So there might be a perfectly you know, reasonable use case for it. But obviously, you know, you look at you zoom in in Yemen, and there's this rectangle that's clearly the perimeter of something, and it's probably not somebody from Yemen with an iPhone running. It looks like right. a military base. So this kind of inadvertent revelations that come from the fact that the data doesn't live by itself but gets joined with millions and millions. This has 300 trillion GPS points, and it shows more than what anybody bargained for. Yeah, but because you don't know. You write in your story, you don't know what you're bargaining for, and in fact, Absolutely. you say the company doesn't Absolutely know what it's not. In for. fact, I don't think Strava went out to say, let's expose the alleged CIA annex at Mogadishu Airport, right? So the, this is the problem. Our privacy protections depend on this alleged informed consent, but the companies are in no position to inform us because they don't know what the data is going to be doing uh, out in the world. So we're not in any position to consent to what we cannot comprehend is going to happen. It's really a difficult moment. Yeah, so we really don't know what you're consenting to when you press the the EULA consent button. Also, the the companies make their, a lot of business models depend on collecting all our data. So it doesn't even make, like, even if we assume they're trying to inform us, they cannot. And very often, it's just legalese. It's pages and pages of stuff. We just click on I agree, and it's not really meaningful. Gavin, let's talk about some examples of how people can inadvertently reveal information. You have an example with people taking a selfie on the first day of their new job. Tell us what's wrong with that. So what's really interesting about the platforms that people use, so everybody who's listening would be familiar with you know, posting a photograph to Instagram or, or to Facebook or other social platforms, and not just uh, applications like Strava. And what's interesting about that is that those platforms usually have what's called an API or an application programming interface. And what that allows people like me to do or people who are in, involved in software is it allows you to you know, check those APIs, not by the person you're interested in, but by the location that you're interested in. So for example, if I'm interested in the Pentagon as a location, I could draw a circle around the Pentagon and then I could check social APIs like Instagrams or Facebooks or or Twitters. And I could see, well, who is sharing location information from that specific location? So say within 100 meters of the center of the Pentagon, who is sharing information? And and then I can aggregate that information and I can can kind of draw a picture of all the people who've ever geotied a a picture or photo or video or tweet from that location over time. And I think people sometimes, you know, they, when you, when, if anybody who, who uses Instagram will often say, well, okay, I'm sharing my information, I'm, I'm taking a photograph and I'll geotag it to say, hey, I'm at whatever location. And often that's, that's some kind of social proof to say, I'm on vacation, here's an amazing location. What's also interesting about it though is that when you're looking at it through the data level, I can pull all those APIs at the same time and then I can extract all the activities of all those different people who visit that location. And that gives me a certain level of understanding of, you know, somebody on their first day at work in a a company like Google or Apple might take a photograph of their, you know, their ID badge and say, hey, it's my first day, and they're gonna geotag the location to that company or that location that they're at. The problem with that to some extent is that somebody could be watching that, and they, in, in theory and in practice are, and they can see all the people who take photographs at that location, and then they can understand to some extent 
who uh, might be being hired by the company because it's, it's their first day. And you can also infer things about that. So you can say, well, what area does that person work in based on their LinkedIn profile? Or right. what, uh, where, in the, where in the world are they from? Is it somebody that this company has brought in from outside the US or is it from somewhere in the US? And does that tell me or give me some intelligence about what, what the behavior of that company is at the moment? Wow, does that bother you too? Well, not only that, like, of course that bothers me. And you, you know, it's very hard to predict the future uses. This doesn't even bring in what artificial intelligence can infer. So, for example, when you sort of post on social media and you know you just post pictures on Instagram, you're probably not thinking that a machine learning algorithm could predict the onset of my depression before clinical symptoms, but they can. Right, so when you're posting online, there's all sorts of ways that artificial intelligence can now statistically infer things about you. Just looking at, say, your Facebook likes. We have this published research that shows that just your Facebook likes can statistically fairly reliably reveal um, your race, gender, your sexual orientation, substance mm-hmm. abuse potential, whether um, your you know depressed state, your personality character. So there's all these. Even if you did not disclose them, so it's not looking at your Facebook like and you join some depression help group. It's just looking at the pattern and inferring private things about you that you didn't realize you were disclosing. So there's like when you put your data out in the world, it's not just the data you're putting out. You're letting machine intelligence these algorithms algorithms kind of churn through it and figure things out about you. And it's being done. And to what purpose? Why is it being done? Well, at the moment, it is mostly being done to sell us stuff and to make us click on things. But in countries like China, and maybe at some point it's plausible here too, it will be done to predict um, for social control, right? Who's a dissident? If you're hiring people uh, who might be prone to unionizing. Um, who might be prone to get pregnant in the next few years, who might be somebody that um, you think is going to cause your company medical expenses. There are all these ways in which it can be used to, for authoritarian purposes, social control purposes, corporate purposes. And the scary thing for me is that even if you reveal it and the sort of the consent form says that you're revealing to the public and it may be used to say, look at your picture, which you already know, and you're like, okay, you can look at my picture. What you can't predict is that what that picture, along with other data about you that's brought together, will reveal. There's just, yeah. we, it's moving very fast. Every week there are new papers and new things hmm. coming out. And I think this is a moment in which there has to be a real good reason for data to be stored as a, just because we, we don't have a handle on what's going on. Do we have a, a, a Gavin, do you agree? I mean, this is- I totally agree. I think, I think Europe has, you know, over here in Europe, we're kind of grappling with this issue quite significantly because a new law will, will come into effect later this year called the General Data Protection Regulation. And it deals with these issues of privacy in a, in a, in a kind of a fundamental way about what you can and can't do and about the consent of people and how they how to consent to their data being used. And even to take on, on Zainab's point about what's possible through how pu- people publicly share it. I mean, what people don't, I think, imagine is that when, when you have an Instagram account and you, ha- you follow a few hundred people and you have a few hundred followers and your account is public, and maybe you've posted a few hundred pictures over the past year, what machines can do with that today 
is extremely significant. I can I can I can take a I can take all your photographs and apply a machine learning algorithm or machine vision algorithm to it, and I can classify your photographs based on what you took photographs of. So you know I'm here in Dublin and I could I could say give me all the photographs of people who've taken pictures of pints of Guinness over the past 12 months at certain locations. And then I could then pull my way through all the photographs that person has taken over time, where they've geotagged information. I could look through who they follow and who follows them and look at the, the interconnectedness of their social graph and figure out something about that person uh, and about who they are and about what they're interested in, about how old they are. Without that person necessarily believing that the information is possibly to be you know, derived from what they've shared, they, right. they're not necessarily understanding how you know what they think might be relatively inane or, or innocuous information can be kind of extrapolated well, and i think i think it's a, it's a serious concern that people are not really aware of this but what i hear what i hear what uh, zainab and both uh, and you are saying is that this information can be weaponized absolutely no. and you, your mental model of what you're doing is you're just sharing on instagram with a couple of hundred people and that's your mental model but that's not the reality that information is being collected for a reason at the moment, it's mostly to profile you for corporate things, but history tells us this is such a tempting political target to profile people, and it's already being used to sort of decide who to hire and decides what to do. It gets scarier. These algorithms that do all this discernment that are developing so fast, we don't even really understand how they're doing it. So we don't, the way they work, you know, they sort of classify things and let's say they pick users that the company's about to hire and says, oh, these people are prone to depression and these people are not. But we don't really know what piece of data came together with what mm -hmm. other piece of data. So it's not like you can say, okay, now let's go pull out, say, the Instagram color profile, and then it won't be able to do it because we don't understand how the classification is being done. So not only can we not foresee future uses, we can't even decide which piece of data to hold back that's going to provide the critical threshold for classification because the machines are doing it on their own without our understanding of what exactly they're doing. It's its really potent and powerful. I, I, I hear you. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International, talking about uh, your privacy with Gavin Sheridan and uh, Zainab Tefekshi. Uh, <coughs> um, this is scary stuff. It is. I mean, I mean, and now we have we have facial recognition everywhere. Absolutely. Right. Um, we have uh, from photos that you post from being in the street. Your picture is taken a hundred times a day. So you put all this stuff together. Are we just? Do you just throw up your hands and say? I privacy is so. over. I, I, I don't think so. So for one thing, I want to say even if you cover your face, these machine learning algorithms can recognize your gait how you walk, so <laughs> they're really powerful. But there was a time in which we had lead, lead in paint, right? We yeah. had every, and we didn't have seat belts in cars, and it might have seemed crazy to say that we would not have lead in paint and we wouldn't use asbestos and all of those things. So I, I actually am quite hopeful that we've just begun. And there are technical ways in which we can have all the conveniences and the nice things that all this data gives, because obviously it's not all downside, right? If you look at Strava's heat map and you're a runner and you find new paths, so there's all these positive things. There are technical ways in which we could collect some data and encrypt it in particular ways and bring it together in very particular ways so that we have conveniences and the power without this kind of individual identification. The problem is, at the moment, Silicon Valley is basically minting money with the current collect everything and do whatever you want model. So they're not really incentivized to provide us with these services without the surveillance. But doesn't the, the Facebook 
problem that just occurred. Yes. Doesn't that give them a little bit of a hint? There's a problem with I think there is a problem, but when you're half a trillion dollar company with your stock going up all the time, uh, the hint isn't overriding the incentive. Yeah. Uh, so my, what I, the reason I'm hopeful is that if we change the incentive structure, I think we have the resources and the technical means to keep a huge amount of the benefits and just not do things this way. Gavin, do you agree? Is there hope for us? I think there is. I think um, there's also an awful lot of interesting technologies coming as well that will cause us more problems. So, for example, uh, the intersplicing of photographs on top of videos. So, for example, you've posted a photograph on Instagram of yourself. That picture is then put on a video to make it look like you're in a video that you're not actually in. And it looks very realistic. It looks like that it's you in the video, but it's not you in the video. Mm. And that, that kind of technique is already being used um, online. But I think overall, there's a kind of a couple of questions here. Is, and one is a question to the platforms like Facebook and, uh, Facebook and Google and other uh, platforms is, how transparent and kind of open are they being about the algorithms that they're using and how those algorithms are being applied? I think that's a really important question for anybody who's using social media at all. Um, why are they seeing the things that they see in, in, in their feed? Why are they getting suggested things? Why are ads being targeted the way they are at that person? So you're saying so, we should be asking these questions? I think it's going to be a combination of things in the future. I think we're in the, like, it's like we're in year zero of social media. We're, we think it's been around for a long time, but actually we're at the very start. And I think one thing is how do we kind of interrogate the platforms that we're using to oblige them, perhaps, to tell us what they know about us. Uh, that's one thing that, that the GDPR in Europe is, is going to kind of cause some problems to the social platforms about, but also whether, um, to some extent, regulation is inevitable or not hmm. about what these social platforms are allowed to do with our data. Um, I think that that's kind of the question for the next five years is how, how uh, will the platforms be proactive about telling us what they're doing? in real time, okay. not just like retrospectively, but also how will legislatures deal with us? All right, and we've run out of time. Gavin Sheridan, also co-founder of, of uh, VizLegal and Dublin, and Zainab uh, Tufekshi, Associate Professor in School of Information and Library Science, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thank you both for taking time to be Thank with us today. Thank you for inviting us. We're gonna Thank take, you for having me. You're welcome. Take a break, we'll be right back after this short break. This is Science Friday, I'm Ira Flato. Huntington's disease is a devastating neurological disorder caused by a genetic mutation. If you have the gene for Huntington's, your chance of having the disease is 100%. But even though the gene is there since birth, the symptoms of Huntington's disease don't start showing up until later in life. Why is that? My next guest also found this curious. Why do people with a genetic mutation only show signs of illness decades after they are born? Well, using a technique for growing human embryos from stem cells in the lab, he discovered that even before people with Huntington's disease show outward signs of the disease, the mutation makes invisible changes much sooner in the earliest stages of embryonic development. Dr. Ali Bravunlu, Bravanlu, I'm sorry, Professor of Molecular Embryology and Stem Cell Biology at Rockefeller University is with us today. Welcome to Science Friday. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, you were able to see what the Huntington's mutation was doing in the embryo by using the CRISPR tool, right? What, what did you do? 
Exactly. So as, as you mentioned correctly, Huntington is a disease that is due to a mutation in a single gene, uh, one of the two copies that we have for every single gene, and it really represents uh, an insertion of DNA, and it, it creates uh, with 100% penetrance all the symptoms that uh, the patients go to the doctor for, which includes jerky movement and ultimately loss of brain neurons and, and dementia. So I'm an embryologist at the Rockefeller University, and my job is to try to figure out how do you generate all the structures from a single fertilized egg, and that includes, of course, the formation of the brain. We were a little bit uh, surprised by the fact that the protein that's expressed in the first cell actually manifests its mutant effect late in, uh, in life when people are in the uh, middle age. And so I wanted to ask if we can find the origins of it. And yes, we did use CRISPR-Cas9 in human embryonic stem cells to model the disease, and we came up with the discoveries that were recently published. Mm -hmm. And your discoveries, you looked at two otherwise identical embryos, and what was different about the one with Huntington's? So we noticed uh, very quickly that as neurons emerge and differentiate, uh, there is some serious abnormalities in the two lines that are otherwise identical genetically, except for that one mutation. And that generated giant multinucleated neurons that we had never seen before. So usually, as you know, a neuron has a single nucleus and axon and dendrite and projections to establish circuitry. In this particular case, while the normal non-HD, not Huntington line, displayed normal neurons, in every single one of the lines that were uh, mutated for Huntington, we discovered this giant multinucleated neurons. And amazingly, the number of neurons, abnormal neurons, was going up the worse the DNA insertion was. In other words, the longer the DNA insertion, hmm. the more frequent those multinucleated neurons were. So even though you can see the, the beginnings right there in the embryo, does it give you any clue to why it doesn't manifest? It takes decades for itself to manifest itself. Well, it's, uh, I think for the first time we're witnessing the origin of the disease. And so is a little bit like these giant dominoes that you probably see in TV or in uh, Southeast Asia TV mostly where you generate these labyrinths of dominoes and then you push the first one and then sometimes few minutes later the last one falls and it unveils a pattern, uh, maybe a flower or a leaf or something like that. We think the same thing is happening here in Huntington and the first symptoms occur very, very early during development. That, that is when the first domino is pushed and then the last one falls decades after birth and creates the symptoms that is recognized at the disease. And of course, there are consequences about this discovery, I think. One of the most important one is what we're doing probably in clinic right now is that we're treating the symptoms of the disease and not the cause. And if we were to be serious about attacking the cause, we should probably intervene much, much earlier, perhaps uh, as early as during embryologies. Embryological time. Are you saying you could do something while the the person was still in, in an embryo stage and inter, in, well, intervene right there? Well, uh, hopefully as soon as possible. As you know, Huntington patients also have access to IVF. So you can go to an in vitro fertilization clinic and generate fertilized embryos and eliminate by DNA sequencing mm -hmm. those that carry the mutation and implant those that do not have the mutation. And this is usually uh, what is done in families that actually can afford this kind of treatment because, as you know, IVF is still not covered by 
insurance is not publicly funded and it requires private fund to to execute this kind of uh, intervention and so it's not accessible to everybody uh, that would be of course the best way to to go if one could do it uh, but for the majority of the people with the disease in the world or in the u.s and i know that the, in the u.s is one in ten thousand americans suffer from this disease for those who cannot afford that kind of technology i think the sooner the intervention the better and yes there are cases where one can uh, intervene relatively quickly uh, we still can let a couple of dominoes fall but we cannot let go to all the way to the last one so anywhere as early as possible the better you think you think it could be are you talking about genetic intervention or what kind of intervention as quickly as possible? So I think both the gene therapy and uh, uh, and drugs are uh, on the table. For gene therapy, we're now starting to see what is the consequences at the genetic level, at the global level, when these neurons have so many different sets of DNA because they have so many nuclei. Some of them can go up to 12 nuclei. It looks a little bit like birthday balloons that you take to somebody's house and they're attached by the string. And that means that the chromosomes are still connected among these different nucleus. Uh, any intervention that helps resolve this conflict between the chromosomes of different nuclei will be a good start as far as we're concerned. And yes, gene therapy is probably mm. one of the easiest approach, but I do not exclude the possibility of doing drug screens in the embryos that we have generated to find the one that rescues these multinucleotide uh, neurons back to normal. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Uh, Dr. Ali Brivanlu, Professor of Molecular Embryology and Stem Cell Biology at uh, Rockefeller University. Thank you and good luck to you. Thank you very, very much. I will need some. Talk to you soon. Bye. The naked mole rat has been boggling the minds of scientists for many years now. What it lacks in conventional cuteness, it makes up for with a whole bunch of superpowers like let me tell you about them. It, it can survive for 18 minutes without oxygen. It's practically immune to cancer. And its most notable characteristic, it can live longer than any animal its size, up to 30 years or more. And now scientists have discovered one more thing about the naked mole rat's abnormally long life. Its chance of dying does not increase over time. You heard me correctly. Joining me to explain what this all means is my guest, Dr. Rochelle Buffenstein. She's a comparative biologist and senior principal investigator at Calico Labs in San Francisco. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. This doesn't mean that the naked mole rat is immortal, does it? No, absolutely not. It means that its chance of dying, if it were one year of age, or 30 years of age is exactly the same. So um, unlike the laws of Gompertz, who was a mathematician in the early 1800s, who discovered that humans show a doubled risk of dying every eight years beyond the age of about 35 to 40. And so you know that a 20-year-old has a much greater chance of surviving for the next 30 years than, say, a 50-year-old has. Um, based on his life tables that he did on British people living in various cities, he came up with a law called the Gompertzian Law of Mortality, which has basically been replicated in horses, dogs, sheep, mice, every other species that has been looked at to date. 
And so we started looking at studies on naked mole rats based on 30-odd years' worth of data that we've collected. And my colleague, Graham Ruby, who's a bioinformatics computer scientist, took these data and really analyzed them very rigorously in terms of the Gompertsian relationships and showed that mole rats showed the same risk of dying if they were two years of age or if they were 30 years of age. There was no change, which was mm. remarkable. You know that to, to lay people, that makes no sense, right? I mean, the, you get older and older and older, your chance of dying is no greater when you're older than when you were younger. And yet this, this, the, the, the naked mole rat does not live forever. No, but its death is random. It's almost like radioactive decay. It's a stochastic mechanism rather than that kind of phenomena. It's almost like the elves in Lord of the Rings, which in the various fights they had landed up all dying almost at the same time, not because they were old, but because of the conditions in which um, they were encountering mm. battles and the likes thereof. So how do you attribute this this statistical an anomaly to the naked mole rat? Why, why is it, you know, defy the, the, the Gompert's mortality law when everything else has to tow to it, kowtow to it? I think a lot of their basic biology contributes to the fact that uh, they live in an environment which may lend itself to really harsh conditions that they have to survive, otherwise the species would become extinct. And they have some strange behavioral patterns in that they use social, they restrict breeding to one female in the colony and a few males in the colony. They live in a desert environment where food is really hard to find, but they're nevertheless protected from a whole range of things that would influence mm -hmm. mortality in the wild. So what is the expected life of a newborn mole, naked mole rat? Uh, that's a trick question because <laughs> a newborn, <laughs> a newborn um, mole rat has quite a high incidence of dying in the first couple of weeks oh, of life. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, uh, they get eaten by their parents, uh, not a very nice phenomenon, um, or they might not get sufficient milk. And after they've survived three months, they pretty much have the same risk of dying as a 20-year-old animal. They seem to have, it's from three months to 30 years or so that we see no change in mortality rate. But they do, in their first couple of weeks, yeah. uh, maybe go through survival of the fittest and then the rest right. that survive are going to do well. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International talking with Dr. Rochelle Buffenstein of uh, Calico about the life expectancy of the naked mole rat. Uh, you, you have been studying them for some time, uh, your entire career, is that correct? I've been studying them almost my entire career in between other studies. I've worked on multiple species, and including humans, but I constantly come back to the naked mole rats. I collected them while I was a student in South Africa in 1980, and I've been fortunate enough to have my colony of mole rats move with me to various places with every job that I've taken on, yeah. What, so what do you find so fascinating about them? Is it just that their longevity, or 
You must find something no. really intriguing. Initially, I was more interested in how they control their vitamin D metabolism, given that they live permanently in the dark. And we know that vitamin D is so integral for cell proliferation, for bone and all those kind of things. And with every study, it came apparent the animals are sort of defying the dogmas and doing things differently. Um, I got fascinated by the fact that they are very resistant to cancer. We've had only five incidences of cancer in more than 30 years of looking to see what animals are dying from and things like that. So we've been fascinated by all mm. sorts of aspects of their biology, and they continue to intrigue us. Mm -hmm. If I were to meet a naked mole rat, would I think it was cute? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> you do you that. You may have I'm to saying, answer that question. <laughs> I'm, saying that, I'm guessing that you do then. I think each animal has its own kind of personality, and yes, I agree they're not the best-looking animals, but when you spend time with them, they really are very cute. Mm -hmm. uh, what, so then what, do you, what more would you like to know? You've been studying them for decades. What would you like to know more about them? Well, I'm really hooked up on why they are able to beat the odds and not get cancer and not get Alzheimer's and not get sort of all the diseases that we associate with aging. And I'm very intrigued in trying to get a handle on the mechanisms they employ that protect them and enable them to live very healthy lives for as long as they do. I would think that people would be throwing money at you to study this for, that, for those very same reasons. Well, there are a lot of people who are very interested yeah. in the biology of the naked mole rat and its role in aging. And Calico has uh, got very interested in these animals and recognized that they're a model of exceptional biogerontological interest. So do I think you, we're at the right place to really get to the answer of why they do you, age Do you so have well. any clues, any hints genetically, or do they have a good diet? I mean, do you have any hints about you know, uh, what the direction to go? Be everything. Yeah. Um, my my guess is that whatever your weakest link is in the system, that's what's going to do you in. Um, but Graham Ruby, uh, the first author on this paper, um, is studying the genetics of these animals, looking at genetic variability and genomic integrity. I think that's a very big player in their extreme longevity. Other aspects of their basic biology are more at the molecular biology. What are the mechanisms that help them prevent protein aggregation diseases like Alzheimer's and mm -hmm. other things like that? So we're really trying to delve into cellular and molecular mechanisms to get a good handle mm -hmm. on what it is that enables these animals to live as long and as healthy as they do. Well, when you guys come up with the answer, will you come back on and tell us more about it? Uh, yeah, happy to do so. Well, we, we're rooting for you because, you know, we all want to extend that life and find out it's what, it's our second favorite animal on the program. So I want you to come on and talk about What's it. What's your first? Tardigrades. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we'll talk more about tardigrades. And, of course, we, we always think about cephalopods. So cephalop that class of animal. We have cephalopod week and that kind of thing. So we could add the naked. We're adding the naked mole rat right in there with the rest of them. 
That's good to know. Okay, Dr. Uh, <laughs> Rochelle Buffenstein, Senior Principal Investigator at Calico Labs in San Francisco. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music, and of course, uh, you can hear us anytime during the week. Amazon and Google Home, they all, you know, every day is Science Friday, all on social media. And just a reminder about a Science Friday book club, we are still reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You can call us and get on our voicemail, 567-243-2456. Let us know what you think of the of the book and we have a book club newsletter additional reading and more on our website sciencefriday.com slash book club if you only have seen the movie and you have never read the book they are two totally different things and it's the you know it's a case where the movie is so much the book is so much better than the movie have a great weekend we'll see you next week i'm ira flato in new york